That music is way too cool for me, but I really like it. <laughs> it is so good to see you. Uh, there's more here in the second than the first, and uh, we're still trying to figure this thing out, but we're glad you're here. I would imagine that every single one of you has had this experience at some level, somewhere along the way in your life. It goes like this. There's an important person in your life who leaves and creates a vacuum. You know that feeling? It might be a loved one, somebody you lost. It might be a friend who's moved on. It might be a colleague who is no longer in the cubicle next to you. But somebody important left and it created a vacuum. You may have experienced it even recently in your job. We get used to leadership styles, right? And it could be that in your job there was a particular leader. You'd figure out how to work with him or her, and then the change happens. What do you do? You were comfortable with your routine. You know inevitably that there will be expectations that you haven't yet figured out. And quite frankly, you're not even sure which questions to ask. Everything's kind of up in the air. You know that feeling. Maybe it's something big and dramatic. Maybe the founder of the organization dies or leaves, retires. Remember those questions? Will Microsoft ever be the same without Bill Gates? Will Apple ever be the top dog without Steve Jobs? You know those scenarios. We've all experienced them. What we see in the passage today is that the disciples were going something like that, except it was way more intense. Jesus had been with them. He was the Son of God. He wasn't just a good leader. He had all the answers. He was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. And now he's going to leave. They're devastated. They're confused. They don't know what to do. He had been their leader. He had guided them through all kinds of thorny situations. They'd experienced with him the ups and downs of ministry, but they knew they were close to the heart of God when they did it. He was a steady person through it all. And they followed him. And, and more than that, he was a teacher. You know, they didn't walk around with their iPads or even a pen and paper taking notes. They walked behind him and watched and listened and learned. It was his presence. And now he's going to be gone. When he spoke as a teacher, he spoke in a way that nobody else had spoken. He spoke with a distinct authority. As a matter of fact, he explained the Scripture in new ways, things they'd never thought of before. He was their teacher. He was their comforter in the midst of storms, literal storms, like in a boat when it was about ready to capsize. He just stood up and said to the water, peace be still. And now he's going to be gone. The gale force winds of life will continue 
but he'll no longer be with them. In his presence, they watched it happen over and over again. People were convicted of their sin. People who were tax collectors like Zacchaeus and everybody hated them in society came to their senses with Jesus. And he said, I'm going to give it all back twice the amount because I've robbed from people and I want to be righteous. He convicted people who were sanctimonious like the Pharisees around him. He convicted people of sin just by his presence. And now he's going to be gone. By the way, there's no succession plan here. Not traditional, kind. There's no great leader who's been assigned to follow him. Yeah, he had kind of three favorite people, Peter, James, and John, but he never said to Peter, you're going to be the new leader, unless you refer to that rock on which I'll establish my church, which wasn't Peter anyway. It was a confession. They looked at each other and said, who's going to replace him? You know, there was some religious precedent for replacing a great leader. Moses had Joshua and he handed the reins off to him. Elijah had Elisha and cast his mantle upon Elisha. We have lots of precedents for good succession plans. And here's the Son of God leaving and there's no succession plan. So what's the answer? Jesus says, here's the succession plan. Unless I go away, the plan can't happen. Unless I go away, the Spirit won't come. And when I go away, the Spirit will come. No, it's not someone you can see like you saw me. No, it's not someone that you can walk with on these dusty paths like you walked with me. It's going to be this mysterious, mystical, invisible spirit. And that spirit will guide you into all truth. And that spirit will be your comforter. And that spirit will convict the world of sin, even through you. I'm leaving, and I'm leaving behind the spirit. It's a new era, Jesus said. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, he said, greater things than I have done will you do in this new era. He said, this spirit will guide you into all truth. Matter of fact, he told them on this particular occasion, I got other things I need to tell you. There's more truth yet to be revealed. But you know what? I can't do it. You're not ready for it now. You can't take it now. But when the Spirit comes, He'll reveal those truths. And you're going to go through persecution, but you're going to be comforted. So how does all of this play out? Will you dance with me through history for a few moments? Here's how it plays out. It begins on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, according to a prophecy from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. And Peter recognizes it. And the person on that day who formerly was a coward 
and cursed the name of Jesus at the fire saying he never knew him, that same person stands up and boldly proclaims the good news concerning Jesus Christ and 3,000 people immediately turn to Jesus Christ by faith. What just happened? What just happened was a guy who had no heart, a guy who could not have the ability in himself to stand up with that kind of courage and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ and could not on his own preach a message that would convict of sin. That guy, that guy was overcome by the power of the Spirit. And the church was born. How else did it happen? It happened when the Spirit poured Himself out upon the apostles and they transcribed for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I'll call to your remembrance those things I've taught you. And He did. And with pen and parchment, they transcribed His words. And now we have this treasure in a book called the Bible. That's not the only way it happened. It happened later in a, in a miraculous, spectacular way. When a man who was called Saul at the time was persecuting the church, doing what he thought was the righteous thing to do, trying to stamp out this gospel of Jesus Christ, was knocked from his horse by a light, and the voice of God came to him. And he was struck blind. And for the next three days... His heart was transformed. He turned to the very Christ he'd been persecuting. And he penned more books of the New Testament than any other author. That's how it happened. You know also how it happened? The mightiest empire the world had ever known who had all human power at their disposal tried to squash the church. Tried to eliminate a small band of people who were Christ followers. And instead what happened by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church spread around the world. It could be stopped because the Spirit was among them. That's just the New Testament. You know more happened. You know the history of the church tells that ongoing revelations from the Spirit of God emerged. Can I geek out for just a minute? The dual natures of Christ. That Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. That doctrine was well developed after the New Testament was closed. Or how about the Trinity? One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, already there, but cloaked in mystery, was fully revealed to the church and became one of the foundation pillars of our faith. And it didn't just stop there. Eventually, 
the church, it understands that slavery is an evil and must be eliminated. You know, actually, the seeds were planted in the New Testament. Remember that tiny little book of Philemon? It doesn't even take up a full page in your Bible. That tiny little book of Philemon is written from Paul to a man Philemon concerning Philemon's slave, and his name is Onesimus. Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, this man Onesimus has become very dear to me while I've been in chains, a slave to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philemon, I could order you in the name of Jesus, with the authority I have to take him back in the way I'm about to describe. But instead, I'm asking you, Philemon, take him back. Take him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Take him back no longer as a slave, but take him back as if he were me. Philemon could not take Onesimus back in that way without undermining the entire idea of slavery. It is not possible. To what extent Paul knew what he was doing, I don't know. To what extent the Spirit was working through the words of Paul, it is evident. Because the church began to realize that the institution of slavery must go. And sadly, my friends, sadly, it took almost 1,800 years. For centuries, since the book of Philemon, Slaves were owned by Christians and abused by Christians. An epic historical event was the emergence from the English culture of a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce became an evangelical Christian. And when he became a convert, his life changed forever. He began to understand that institutional slavery was in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave his life, devoted his life to the overturning of that slavery as an institution. And three days before his death, he was overturned in England. That was motivated by love for Jesus Christ. That was motivated by the principle from Philemon. That was motivated by the realization that every human being is created in the image of God and we cannot own other people. It was a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. You know, that's not the end of that story. It continues, but there was another man about the same time. 
His name was John Newton. And he too, under the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, gave his life to Christ. A former slave owner now pens the words of the most famous beloved hymn ever. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, a slave trader, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now by the Spirit I can see. That's what happened, and that's what Jesus was promising to those early disciples. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send the Comforter. You know as well as I do that continuing doctrines, continuing new revelations concerning the Spirit of God emerge historically among the people of God. We finally got to the place that after we recognized the evil of slavery, we recognized the evil of racism. I hope they're an extension of one another. Jesus actually made a point against racism a long time ago. When asked, who is my neighbor? A challenging question. Who should I treat as my neighbor? Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the Samaritans? The most despised of the culture. The ones who were disenfranchised from everyone but themselves. That, says Jesus, is an illustration of what it means to love your neighbor. Did he love someone who was like him? No, he loved someone who was different than him when nobody else would. Racism continually rears its ugly head in our country and in other places. You know that well. Just a few days ago, I was present at a rally in downtown Bloomington promoting racial justice. I was so pleased and proud to realize that multiple members of the Board of Elders and deacons and many from our congregation were there. I was pleased because I think our presence was an extension of the presence of Jesus. To understand in our contemporary culture whether or not there is systemic racism, you can't ask me. I'm not the authority. And as I glance around this morning, I can't ask you because you're not the authority. 
The only way I can understand whether or not there is systemic racism is to ask the person who's affected by it. That doesn't happen to be me. This matter has become a hot political matter. But for me, it's a very personal one. On both sides of our family, my wife's and mine, we have biracial families. And I'll tell you, my friend, I cannot understand racism like my brother can, who has a black child, who talks to him night after night in the midst of the violence and tries to help him work through it. What's the point? Among other things, I have to listen. Here's my typical MO, talk. And I need to stop and simply listen. I need to try to get inside the heart, the mind, the skin of another. On Saturday, I was working around the house and I cut my finger and I found a Band-Aid. Hopefully you can't hardly see it. I mean, that was the point. I tried to make it flesh-colored. Have you ever tried to find a black Band-Aid? I was heartened to hear on the news a couple days ago the Johnson & Johnson, I believe it was, Band-Aid Company, said in the wake of all this, they were coming out with all kinds of colors of Band-Aids. It's just an illustration of how I don't fully understand. There's rhetoric going on all around and there's an interesting way in which we all, for whatever reason, use phrases and words to oppose the other. You hear this phrase, black lives matter. And you hear this phrase, all lives matter. And for the most part, when you hear the second phrase, the second phrase is a condemnation of the first phrase. How ludicrous is that, my friends? If we think theologically as Christ followers, here's what we know. All lives matter. And because all lives matter, black lives matter, and Asian lives matter, and Latino lives matter, and immigrants' lives matter. Because every single one of them are created in the image of God and to defame another race or to do anything that is harmful to another race is to mar the image of God. Let's think, my friends. Let's not listen to the nonsensical rhetoric. Who are we allowing to lead us? It ought to be Jesus Christ.
And there are times, I will say, when it's appropriate to emphasize how a certain race matters because that certain race is under the heavy oppression of injustice. So, I wondered how all this was going to go over. Um, and my daughter's really great about Twitter. And I'm not. And she told me I'd already been tweeted at. Is that a way to say it? Somebody tweeted at me and I only have a Twitter account. <laughs> I know it stirs things up. But what I want to suggest is that we need to be in conversation. We don't need to shout. We need to think. We need to pray. We need to try to understand the other. So back to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In this situation or other situations, how are we to be led by the Spirit of God? How are we to keep from going off on tangents or heresies or things that are outside the lines of the Christian message of the gospel? First of all, we do it by making sure that whatever is in our heart, the impulse that we think is so good, is an impulse, a direction that does not contradict the Word of God. Why? Because it is that same Spirit that inspires our hearts that wrote the Word of God. They are inseparable. And we need to make sure we check our instincts against the Word of God. The second way that we're led by the Spirit is we ask this question. Do my actions glorify Jesus Christ? Why do we ask that question? That you might move to piety. And that's true. It's a good question for pietistic living. But my emphasis is this. If you are off on something that you believe to be true and you're passionate about it, check your passion against the Scripture and check to see whether or not your good, well-intended passion glorifies Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Spirit is always glorifying Jesus Christ. The role of the Spirit was to glorify Christ. It was to always point to the cross. Too often, my passion points to me. How else are we to be led by the Spirit? We're to pray fervently before we make decisions rapidly. It is so easy to call things out, name it this way, and be judgmental. It's a lot harder to hold your tongue, to pray for wisdom, to know how to navigate the waters that you're in. Fourth, in order to be led by the Spirit, we seek 
the counsel of others in Christian community. I just love it that you're here. I don't mean to diminish your presence, but I miss all those other people. We need to be together. This is where we're shaped. This is where iron sharpens iron. This is where discussions among honest people who are following Jesus Christ can shape our direction. We gotta stay in conversation, my friends. We gotta stay in conversation. There's one final thing I think we need to do, and I've mentioned it already, if we're gonna be led by this Spirit. We need to listen to others. We need to listen to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And we lead, need to listen to others who do not even believe. They've got a story. They have something to share. And it will help you to understand how to be led by the Spirit to address the issue that they face. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are so grateful um, for the leadership of your Spirit. We are so sad for our history. We are sad that the Church of Jesus Christ has routinely gone in the direction that the Spirit would not and did not lead us. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with those who call themselves Christ followers to open up our minds, to help us understand what the Spirit and the Word of the living God are. And we ask you, Lord, to descend upon our hearts. Help us to understand what it means to truly follow you. We thank you for your grace, and we pray that you will help us to make it abundant and free to all those that we come in contact with. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.